fashion us in your likeness that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith speak O Lord and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory teach us Lord full obedience holy reverence true humility test our thoughts and our attitudes in the your purity cause our faith to rise cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority words of power that can never fail let their truth prevail over unbelief. Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. Truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will down through eternity and by grace will stand on your promises and by faith will walk as you walk with us speak O Lord till your church is filled and the earth is filled with your glory. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. That song pretty much captures uh, what our prayer ought to be every time that we come to God's Word and we open it. So when I pray here in just a minute, I'm probably just going to Scoot over to this music stand and read those words back. We're in Matthew's Gospel. We started over Advent. And we came last week to what has been commonly called the Sermon on the Mount, uh, an extended section of Jesus' teaching, where Jesus is showing us, uh, teaching us what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom, what it means to belong to God's kingdom. When you're Life comes under the gracious rule of God, how that transforms it. You'll notice if you look in Matthew chapter 5, that's where we're going to be, in verse 1, that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Matthew tells us that the crowds came to him, and when they came to him, he went up on the mountain and his disciples came to him, and it was to them that he spoke. Jesus is speaking to those who want to follow him who want to be his disciples. And he 
begins his sermon by describing the kind of people who live in God's kingdom. This, histor- this has historically been called uh, the Beatitudes, from the Latin word for blessed. It's what we would typically call a Christian. Jesus calls these people blessed. And so again, as I asked you last week, I'm going to ask you again this week, what does that mean when you hear that word blessed? What do you think of? You don't have to answer out loud, but in your mind, go ahead and think about what, how we typically define blessed. I found this definition this week and thought it was a good one. The blessed person is the one who has the approval of God and finds fulfillment as a human being. The blessed person has the approval of God. And that's what it means to be blessed, to know that God smiles upon you. And when you have his approval, when you have his smile, that is where you find your satisfaction. And so in that sense, I would argue that every person in this room, whether you're religious or not, whether you would identify as a Christian or not, that every person in this room is hunting that to be blessed. Even if you wouldn't maybe put it in those words, you're looking for that sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. And the only place you will find it is in the smile of God. But Jesus shocks us here. We saw this last week too. When he describes blessed people, it's not the people that we expect. When we think of blessed people, we think of confident, attractive, cheerful, wealthy, powerful, influential people. Jesus, on the other hand, tells us that the blessed people are those who understand how spiritually needy they are. Verse 3. They realize their true poverty before God. And that leads them to mourn. Not only do they see their need, but they mourn their sin. They're grieved over what grieves God. That's what it means to be blessed. And because they see their need and they mourn over it, that makes them meek. Verse 5. Gentle. Lowly. They're not swaggering bullies who demand their rights. And get their way. They're gentle and humble. Which leads them to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 6. They're hungry to be right with God. And they long for God to make them righteous. To think and to do that which is right. They realize that there's a need. And they want God to fill it. And what we have in these first four traits is the Christian's heart posture. Uh, The posture, the attitude of the Christian in himself, in herself, before God. We could describe it as the vertical relationship. And today what we're going to look at in verses 7 through 12, we'll see how that heart attitude acts towards others. So let's read God's word. I'm going to read uh, all, of the, all of those verses again. Uh, we're going to focus on verses 7 through 12, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 just so we have them all fresh in our memory. 
seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help. Lord, would, would you do that which we just asked you to do in song? Would you cause the truth of your word to prevail over the unbelief in our hearts? Show us what you have for us. Lord, make us new people, transform us from the inside out. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned last week uh, Moses and a connection here with Moses. I want to revisit that a little bit. Uh, If you're familiar with the story of the Bible, or if you're not, what you'll find when you go back to the Old Testament book of Exodus uh, is God liberating his people from slavery. Uh, He raises up a man named Moses. He sends Moses to go get his people out of slavery. uh, And you're probably familiar with the highlights of that story. Uh, the, The plagues, the Passover, the Red Sea. And what we see is God liberates his people. And then what does he do with them? He brings them to himself at a mountain, Mount Sinai. And what is the first thing that God does with the people while they are at the mountain? He teaches them how to live. He reminds them of his grace in Exodus 19 and the first verse of Exodus 20. And then he delivers what we call the Ten Commandments. He shows his people how to live. Now, why does he need to do that? And I would answer this because all of life can be boiled down to two questions. If you want to understand your life, if you want to understand what drives you, what you're, what you're, what you're seeking to answer the moment you wake up in the morning and how you evaluate your day when your head hits the pillow at night, it's two questions. Who am I and what am I supposed to do? We are answering those questions even unthinkingly. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Subconsciously. There we go. Almost from the moment we're born. Even, 
even if you're nine years old, you're actually seeking an answer to these questions and you don't even realize it. Who am I and what am I supposed to do? Now, I want you to think about Israel. Before they meet God at Mount Sinai, where had they been? In Egypt, in slavery, for 400 years. Longer than our country has been in existence, the people of Israel were in slavery. Now, we don't know a whole lot about, we we know that they knew the Lord because they cry out to him for help. But I want you to think about what their lives looked like on a day-in, day-out basis. They lived in a foreign culture, surrounded by foreign gods, the false gods of Egypt. Most of that time was spent in slavery, working for the Egyptians nonstop. What impact do you think that had on their sense of identity, on answering those two questions? Who, who am I and what am I supposed to do? The reason that God has to teach them how to live is because they'd been in slavery to a foreign power for 400 years. He may have liberated them, but Egypt was still in their bones. They had, they had, the, voice, they had the voices of Egypt influencing them. And you see that in the fact that as they go through the wilderness, they're constantly wanting to go back. They're constantly complaining and saying, oh, that we were just back there in Egypt. Egypt was, in, even though they had been saved by God and identified as God's own, yet Egypt was still in their bones. And that's the same with us, isn't it? We are deeply influenced and shaped by so many voices outside of God's. And so, even if we have come to know Jesus, we've been saved by him, right? all of those influences are still deep in our bones, We're shaped and influenced by our families, good and bad. We're shaped and influenced by the cultures that we're a part of. Yes, plural. Right? Did you grow up in the city or did you grow up in the country? That shapes you. Are you an Alabamian or are you a sinner? I mean, uh, are you from somewhere else? Just kidding. Right? That that shapes you. Right? Uh, Southern, American, white, Hispanic... All of those things, all of those identity markers, all of those things shape us and influence us in ways that we don't even realize. They answer those questions. Who are you and how do you live? What am I supposed to do? And so Jesus, the new Moses, the better Moses, has to go up on the mountain and he has to teach us how to live. He has to reshape all of those values that we've gained from how we've been growing up, right? He has, to, he has to give us new values and reshape our characters. And that's what he's doing in these opening verses of the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we looked at the vertical, uh, a Christian in his heart posture before God. Now we're going to look at that at the horizontal. How does the vertical affect the horizontal? How does that heart posture uh, affect the way that I deal with others? And so... We're just going to run straight through them. Uh, Verse 7, Christians show mercy. Verse 8, Christians pursue purity. Verse 9, Christians reconcile broken relationships. And then verses 10 through 12, Christians expect mistreatment and rejoice in future hope. Let's look at that first one. Christians show mercy. 
Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful. As I mentioned last week, all of these are connected to each other, right? All of these kind of go in line with each other. So what's the, what's the connection between hungering and thirsting for righteousness and being merciful? Well, if I understand that I am empty of righteousness and I need God to fill me, what is it that I'm asking for? I'm asking for his mercy. I have a need and I need him to meet that need. That's what mercy does. Mercy meets needs. And if I have received mercy in my need, how then should I respond to the needs around me? Jesus says we are merciful. Let's define that word, mercy. What is mercy? You could define it as compassion. Seeing someone in need and moving towards it. Uh, mercy and grace overlap. They are similar, but there's some distinction. God's grace deals with sin and guilt itself. It deals with the core of the problem. His mercy deals with the results of sin. Pain, misery, distress. Grace deals with sin We could say that mercy deals with the results of sin. This is what we see Jesus doing. Not only does he proclaim God's grace in proclaiming the kingdom, but then what deeds go with that proclamation? Deeds of mercy. He heals people. He casts out demons. He's dealing with the results of sin, the results of the fall. And again, this is contrary to what we call blessed Blessing to us is not a life of mercy. Blessing to us is a carefree life. Carefree life. Not encumbered by the needs of other people. I mean, just think about the ways that we uh, advertise retirement. Right? We're told to to look for the carefree life. The, The good life is the insulated life. Where I can retreat from everyone around me and find a place where I I don't have to engage with anyone. I can just be me, whatever that means, and hunt seashells for the rest of my days, right? We'll nod to John Piper there. Uh, That's how we define the blessed life. Jesus defines it differently. Listen to what John Calvin says. He was a, a French pastor in Switzerland. He says, the world counts those blessed as those who are free of outside troubles to attend to their own peace. But Christ here says they are blessed who are not only prepared to put up with their own troubles, but also to take on other people's, to help them in distress, to freely join them in their time of trial, and as it were, to get right into their situation that they may gladly expend themselves in their assistance. Mercy. Blessed are the merciful. As I read those words, I think of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. Maybe you remember the story. A man is beaten and robbed and left for dead in the wilderness. Two religious leaders pass him by. 
not wanting to be defiled, not wanting to trouble themselves with his need. And then a Samaritan, a despised half-breed, comes along. And he sees the man in his need, and at great risk to himself, goes to the man, puts him on his horse, carries him into town, spends himself dressing his wounds, and then as he leaves, tells the innkeeper, I'll cover his bill. Whenever he gets better, I'll come back. That's mercy. To go out of his way to meet needs. Blessed are the merciful. They shall receive mercy. Now, maybe you read that and you go, hold on just a second. You're saying that in order to receive mercy, I have to show mercy? Like I can earn mercy by showing it? No, that would contradict what Jesus has said even up to this point, where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? We don't have what it takes to earn the good gifts. Right? We're, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Right? So we don't, we don't earn anything from God. Jesus earns it and gives it to us. But what Jesus is saying is that if I don't show mercy, and we're going to see this again in Matthew 6 and in Matthew 18. It's a, it's a theme that he comes back to. If we don't show mercy, if we're not ready to extend forgiveness, then we don't understand how much mercy has been shown to us. That if we are not merciful people, then it's very likely that we are those who have not known God's mercy. But those who do know God's mercy are people who will show God's mercy. Blessed are the merciful. And then we see that Christians pursue Purity. Look at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. What is purity in heart? What's he talking about? Well, in Jesus' day, you had these people called the Pharisees, and they were very concerned with outward purity. Had they, had they checked the boxes? Were they religiously pure? Outward purity was their concern. Jesus says he calls them whitewashed tombs. He says, you may look good on the outside, but you're all dead on the inside. The Christian doesn't pursue outward purity as much as he pursues inward purity, purity of the heart. There's a cleanliness aspect to it, but there's, there's more. He's also talking about a single-minded devotion, what it means to be pure. We that one of the songs we sang earlier has echoes of Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. And so to be pure in heart is to, be, is to have a single devotion. Right? What is it that makes pure water pure? Well, it's just water. It's not water and dirt, right? It's not divided. To be pure of heart is to be undivided. In relationship to God, the person who is pure in heart is free from falsehood. Her whole life is transparent before God and others. The opposite of purity in heart would be hypocrisy and deceit. Double-minded is the word James uses. 
living two lives. That word hypocrisy, uh, that comes from a Greek word, uh, the first actors, the, the, the famous Greek actor Hippocrates. Uh, and in Greek theater, you didn't have stage makeup, you had masks. The, the Greek actors would put on masks, and that was supposed to tell you who they were in the play. Well, you can see how that comes down to our hypocrisy. We put on masks, right, to cover, our, to cover our real selves. Jesus says, not blessed are the hypocrites, blessed are the pure in heart, who are transparent before God and others. They will see God. They will see exactly what it is they want to see, who it is they want to see. Their single devotion will be rewarded. And that's true now in a partial sense. Paul says we see in a glass dimly. And if you're a Christian, you see God in ways that maybe your non-Christian neighbors don't. We see now dimly, but then one day, someday, we will see face to face. We will see him as he is. We will receive that for which we long. There's so much here, and I'm only two points in. Let's hit number three, and then I'll save the rest for next week. Christians reconcile broken relationships. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. It's interesting, again, the connection between them, right? If I'm pure in heart, I'm sincere, then I tend to seek peace, right? Because what is it that stirs up strife? Hypocrisy and deceit. Paul tells us in Romans twelve eighteen, as far as it is possible with you, live at peace with all men. Blessed are the peacemakers. God himself is a peacemaker. He is the ultimate reconciler of broken relationships. That's why Jesus came. Paul spends a whole passage on this in Ephesians 2, that Jesus came for the purpose of making peace between God and us. And he makes peace between us and us. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. And therefore, those who follow him pursue the same path. Which is why Jesus says they will be called sons of God. Because when we pursue peace, when we tend to mend relationships that are broken... We are acting like our Father in heaven. Now, this peace is not peace at any price. Right? Peace and appeasement are two different things. God tells Old Testament prophets, false prophets, he warns them against preaching peace where there is no peace, a peace against making peace a shallow thing. We see that God makes peace at great cost to himself. His grace is free, but it is not cheap. I told this to the students, and it's something shocking to say, uh, but I'm going to say it. God does not forgive everyone. God does not make peace with everyone. He makes peace with those who repent. He grants forgiveness to those who ask for it. God's peace is costly. 
because he gave the life of his son to secure it. And so cheap peace, on the other hand, says, ah, we'll just let this blow over. We'll, we'll pretend it's not an issue. We're just, we're just not going to talk about it. But to avoid, to avoid peacemaking is to leave an open wound still bleeding. It's to leave a broken bone unset. And what happens every time you set, I mean, every time you bump into a broken bone that has not been set? It hurts. It will keep hurting until we do the painful work of healing. And so in order to make peace, we have to deal honestly with sin and strife. We have to embrace the pain that will come with apologizing. It's painful to admit that you've done wrong and to apologize. We have to admit something we may not want to admit. And then it's painful to humbly rebuke someone who has injured us. It will be uncomfortable because we open ourselves up to attack. But that is what it takes to make peace. And so really, we, we think that if we kind of the peace at any cost model, right, uh, we'll just let it blow over, we just won't address it. Well, in that case, the pain just keeps going and just keeps building. So, so neither, neither path is the pain-free path. This one allows pain to fester. This one says, okay, we're going to have to deal with this, and I might take a shot to the face, but we're going to deal with it. We need to make peace. That's what peacemaking looks like. And again, I'm pulling up a little bit short here. We'll, we'll close with this thought. As we, as we look at those things, what is, what is your heart saying? As you consider those values of the kingdom, are they your values? Are you pure in heart? Are you a peacemaker? Are you merciful? If your heart is like my heart, I struggle even to read those things. Because I realize just how far short of them that I fall. And so I think our first response to reading these, reading these is to say, I repent. I am not where I wish I could be. I repent and I trust in Jesus to forgive me of how far short I fall. And then I ask for his help. Lord, make me a merciful person. Lord, make me sincere and single-minded and pure in heart. Lord, make me a peacemaker and not a strife stirrer. Let's ask for the Spirit's help to do those things. And then next week we'll look at what it means for us to expect mistreatment, but to rejoice in hope. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we pray what Jesus prayed Excuse me, what we, what we pray, what we sang at the beginning of the worship service as we gathered together, that the mind of Christ our Savior would dwell in us from day to day 
by his love and power controlling all I do and say. Because, Lord, as we look at these words, we see the mind of Christ. Jesus is showing us what we should be like because he's showing us himself. And yet we acknowledge, Lord, that this is not what we are like. Lord, would you give us a desire for better? Would you conform us to the image of your son? And Lord, we thank you that you promised to do just that. That he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Until that day, Lord, continue to renew and transform us by the power of your word and spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite our elders to come forward.